I think it goes without saying that money is not always a subject that people want to hear about in church, is it? And sometimes for good reason, particularly if you have had experiences in church where money is really like a stick to beat you with. It is to make you feel guilty. It is to induce um, strange behavior in you. It is to make you feel shameful or unworthy, or it's basically to manipulate you into giving money. I can understand why you're going, I do not want to hear about money. Similarly, if your experience of hearing about money in church has been associated with some terrible theology, let's try on for size, God wants you rich, the more you serve him, the richer you will get, and if you are not rich, it's because you're not serving him properly, or worse, you will get healed if you give money, you will have everything you want from your career if you give money, you will get that Oscar that you deserve if you give money, either to the church or probably to the pastor and his gold-encrusted toilet fund. You know, that sort of thing. I can understand why you are wary about hearing about money. Those are reasonable and good reasons to not want to hear about money in church. And can I just say, if any church um, kind of resembles that, I would try and get as far away from it as possible. God bless them, just get away. Good. There's another reason why we don't like to hear about money in church, and it's not such a good one. It's this. It's my money. I like my money. Do not talk to me about my money. I could do with a lot more money, and I do not want you prying into my business, and particularly, I do not want you telling me that I might possibly be better off if I gave some money away. Go away. Not such a good reason. There was a um, survey done of psychotherapists, and they were asked, in their professional opinion, what would be the worst things that you could do to a patient? Kissing a patient touching a patient, even having full-blown sexual intercourse with a patient were all deemed less bad than ever lending them money. That's how much we don't want people touching our money. The issue is, and perhaps it's our unwillingness to address the subject of money that leads Jesus to talk about money more than any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. For Jesus, there are no taboos, and he is going for our money over and over again. And the reason is simple enough. It is too serious a subject not to do so. For Jesus, money is not something we should treat lightly. In fact, it is one, if not the most powerful forces in the whole universe. It can cause great good and terrible destruction to people's lives. So, with this happy thought in mind, let us consider one of the parables Jesus tells about money. This is from Luke chapter 16, Verse 1, I will read it to us now. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, 
he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth. Let me start verse 9 again. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly, worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have been, not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, here is a rich man uh, with his estate, and he has a manager. And the manager's job is to oversee all the money, all the business dealings, and to make sure that he is administering this um, huge amount of money well and beneficially to the master. But it comes to the attention of his boss that the manager hasn't been doing a very good job of this, so he confronts him and he sacks him on the spot. Now, the fact that the manager has no defense probably suggests that he knows he's completely guilty. But before the manager has actually turned over his accounting ledgers and books and whatever you have, I don't know, those things with money in them, uh, and before, I guess, it has become public knowledge that he's been sacked, he quickly brings in a couple of the boss's debtors and does a deal with them and basically lets them off huge amounts of money so as to ingratiate himself to them. We then get to the problematic verse, verse 8. Jesus says this, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So let's try and clear some of the problems up from this and the subsequent verses. Firstly, the manager is described here as dishonest in this verse, verse 8, primarily because of what he was getting up to before he was sacked, not what he gets up to after having been sacked. Secondly, though, and even so, why on earth would the manager commend, uh, sorry, would the master commend the manager at all? Because effectively the manager has done him out of more money um, without his permission. Now, the answer to this is far from clear. There is some speculation, and you may have heard it said, that the reductions the manager's offering to these debtors are actually his commission, his own commission, the money that was going to come to him. So he is choosing to forego his commission, knowing that the manager will still get exactly the same amount of money that he was expecting, and then these debtors will get to pay less. The manager loses out, but he gains friendship with these people, and the boss himself doesn't lose anything. Now, whilst this is um, an attractive idea, there's no evidence that anyone would have thought that that was what was happening. And in fact, Jesus does not say that that's happening at all. Actually, what he does say was that the manager chooses to get less money for his boss so as to have a good relationship with these debtors. 
and probably that's how we should read it at face value. And the boss is simply commending him on a clever, if ethically questionable, use of his own money and the position of the manager. It's a bit like that bit in Jurassic Park where Muldoon, the hunter, feels like he has trapped the velociraptor. Think back to when you were eight. And there he is with the velociraptor in his sights and he's about to shoot it and then suddenly another velociraptor out of the side of the bush puts his head right there and Muldoon turns to, him and goes, turns to her and goes, clever girl, and then he dies. This is effectively what the master is saying. He's saying, oh, you have screwed me yet again. You have done it very well, though, and I have to applaud your ingenuity of even though you have been sacked, you've still managed to take money out of me. Very shrewd. Clever boy. That's what he's saying. The desire that we have to have spiritually satisfying um, answers to all the elements of these parables is understandable. But let's just not get fixated on the details because Jesus isn't. In fact, he's very happy to have these loose ends left untied because there is one strong point that he wants to shove in our faces and he does not want us to miss it. So let's not miss it. And the point is this. Jesus is saying to us, be shrewd with money. That's it. Verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The manager is the focus, and he is an example to us, not because of his dodgy ethics, in fact, despite of his dodgy ethics, but simply he is an example because he is shrewd when it comes to money. He is wise with how to use money. And so the questions I want to try and answer are, how is the manager suddenly able to become shrewd with money? And secondly, what constitutes shrewdness with money, wiseness with money, wisdom is the actual word, with money in Jesus' eyes? Those two questions. Firstly, what enables this man to become shrewd with money? And the answer to this lies in the understanding of what Jesus describes in verse 9 and verse 11 as worldly wealth. This is actually a terrible translation. A better, the most literal translation is unrighteous mammon. But in our parlance, it might be filthy lucre. That's what he's calling it. Now, you may know that mammon is an um, Aramaic word and it means wealth or profit. But what Jesus is doing here is he is personifying money as a god. As he does actually elsewhere throughout the Gospels. Money stops being money and it becomes this living, breathing, power-wielding god for those who go after it. And gods, as we know, are extremely powerful. And gods demand service. The more we give ourselves to them, the more they want from us, and money is no different. In fact, money is after complete and utter control and power over us. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are these two kind of paradoxical streams of how money is represented, and sometimes they can seem even contradictory. On the one hand, there is the light side of money. So Jesus says, don't worry about money at all. God is going to give you everything that you could possibly need. 
He says um, that uh, he's happy to have extremely expensive perfume poured over him as an anointing. He goes to parties. He goes to a wedding that is so exorbitant and so uh, kind of over the top that all the w- wine runs out. And he is more than happy to just produce some more wine. Well, he's not more than happy, but he does. And he is supported by and he associates with people who have extreme wealth. And he tells stories, for example, like the Good Samaritan, about people who use their money, lots of it, for good purposes. So there is the light side, and then, of course, there is the dark side. Jesus tells the rich young ruler that he needs to go away and sell all his possessions and give his money to the poor if he wants to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And he makes some extremely stomach kind of quenching, apocalyptic type pronouncements about the rich. He says, woe to the rich, because you've had everything that you're ever going to have, and it's going to get bad for you. No more comfort for you now. It's very strong stuff. And before any of us get tempted to go, yeah, woe to you rich people. (laughs) Woe to you hedge fund managers. Your time is up. It's coming for you by the dint of the fact that probably everyone in this room could walk out, go to Starbucks, and buy a $4, $4, $4 coffee, puts us into the global rich. I'm sorry to say. I can't do that, so I'm not. But you guys are all in the global rich. And therefore, Jesus has us all in mind, including me. It's tempting to want to avoid the uncomfortableness of what Jesus says, but can I encourage you to actually sit with it for a minute? It will actually do us good. Jesus is so forthright about this aspect of money because he knows how important it is for us to hear the truth. And theoretically, of course, money is value neutral. It is not a God. Theoretically. But for Jesus, in practice, its power is so potential to rule us, to destroy us, that it might as well be a God and it might as well be a malignant one. Filthy lucre. Unrighteous mammon. And in my excellent talk about money back in April... Uh, You can download it, free for everyone. Uh, I talked about how Jesus describes money as this sort of blinding darkness. It's like a black hole. And like when you are in darkness, you don't know you're in darkness because all you can see is darkness. You don't know what is around you. This is what he describes money as and what it can be like. It pulls us in. It is like a Dementor's kiss, and it sucks the life out of us. And it means that we find it very difficult to know what our issues with money are. Murder, on the other hand, it's pretty easy. It's easy to understand if we've murdered anyone, people have died. Similarly, with adultery, it's hard to accidentally commit adultery. How did that happen? Who are you? Where did you come from? It's a difficult thing to do. Are you greedy, though? Are you tight? Harder questions to answer. This is the vortex of money. It blinds us. 
So is money ruling you, or are you able to blissfully exist without its power affecting you? Symptoms of it being in charge are these. Anxiety about money. Not ever, ever wanting to look at the bank account for fear of what might be there. When you put your card in the ATM, would you like to have a look at your balance? No, I would not like to have a look at my balance. Unrestricted spending, hoarding, coveting, fantasizing about what you might have in the future. Back to the parable. What we're to understand about the manager is that he has clearly been overpowered by the vortex of money. He has been blinded by the mammon. The exact phrase used in verse 1 that he is accused of is wasting his possessions. And this is very important because Jesus is intentionally using exactly the same phrase that he's just used in the previous parable during the same discourse, the very famous one about the prodigal son. The prodigal son is said to do exactly the same thing, waste someone else's money and possessions on wild living. And this is what the manager has also done. And he has done it because he is ruled by money and he doesn't see that it is destroying his life, it is destroying his job prospects, it is destroying actually his whole future. He hasn't seen that, he's just in the thrall of money. But, and this is the important point for answering our question, how is he then enabled to become shrewd? He recognizes what has happened. Verse 3, when he says that um, is, it's like a um, parallel to the prodigal son hitting rock bottom. You know, he comes to his senses when he's feeding the pigs and he suddenly goes, oh, wait a second, I should go back to my father and at least I could be a servant of his. This is the same moment for the manager in this verse. He says, what am I going to do now? I have been found out. My whole life is crumbling apart from me. I need to sort myself out. I need to work out what has gone wrong and I need to change my attitude towards money. And he does it completely in that moment by going, I know, I will just go to these people and let them off money. And this is the process for all of us of derobing and robbing money of its power. We've got to admit that it's got it, that it has power over us. Hannah and I um, recently sold our place in London, our house in London. Um, this has been um, a very boring and long process. It's taken like more than a year, and it's involved um, two sets of tenants refusing to move out. Yeah, we, we got one set of tenants who finally moved out, having not paid us any rent for a while. Uh, and then we managed to replace them with another set of tenants who didn't want to move out all the while while we were trying to sell the property. It looks like we don't know what we're doing. We didn't. Anyway, that was very traumatic. And then these, these last tenants um, weren't getting out, and the buyers were saying, well, you've gone past the date in which you should have got them out. And then our tenants were threatening us with legal action, and then our um, buyers were threatening us with legal action. And both of them said, oh, by the way, here's a massive chunk of money that you've got to give us and our lawyers are writing difficult um, letters and it turns out our lawyer was useless, utterly, utterly useless. So I became a lawyer. I basically decided I'm going to read up on property law because this is bad. This is going bad for us. Anyway, all to say in the end, um, last week, yeah, wow, 
Last week, we, sold, we finally sold the house. It was great. And it was a great sense of relief and trauma having ended. And we had the money in our account. And then I realized we need to pay quite a lot of people back for money that we have borrowed from them uh, for this period kind of costing us quite a lot. And I looked at the money that had come in the account and I thought, I don't want to do that. I would like to hold all this money because this has been really hard for us. I do not want to do this. I, I think we should just ignore paying them back and just keep hold of the money. And then, and Hannah and I went back and forth over not actually having this conversation, but I think both of us knew we were going to have this conversation at some point. But we were both hoping that the other one would bring it up, and if neither of us brought it up, perhaps we'd never have to do it. But Hannah finally broke because she's more inclined to guilt than I am. She said, <laughs> she said, I think we should also give some money away. Oh, don't say that. Don't, I think we should give a portion of the money, the profit, away because, you know, that's what we're commanded to do in the Bible and it's a good thing. And I thought, oh, you evil woman. <laughs> that's not the end of the story, don't worry. But I... I I wrestled with this quite a long time and um, kind of played things over in my head and worked out. And I realized, oh my goodness, I have a problem with money. I do not want anyone to touch this money, even though some of it's not even mine. I want it. I thought, this is bad. I am a pastor and this is what I'm thinking. Don't tell the church. But the manager is only able to act shrewdly because he's understood the power that money has over him and he is willing to do things to let it stop having power over him, to, to derobe de it of power. So, admit it. I've just admitted it all to you. Why don't you admit it to yourself? You don't have to say anything out loud that now and again, money has power over you. Question two, having done that important step, how are we then going to use it wisely? In very simple terms, the manager understands that people are always more important than money. People have eternal value, things do not. The person making your cappuccino is more important than your cappuccino. The person making your avocado toast and serving you with your whatever is more important than your avocado toast. The person selling you a car, showing you an apartment, helping you find the right shoes and giving you the wrong size or the right size, they are more important than your shoes, than your house, than your car, than everything else even if they are grumpy, even if they don't seem to care one little jot about you, even if they are terrible at your job, they are all, because we are all, more important than anything else in the world. Because we have eternal value. And this is the lesson that Jesus is teaching. And his logic is what's known as a fortiori logic, 
We've mentioned this a few times. Jesus uses it all the time. It is basically going from the lesser to the greater. So Jesus is saying the similar thing to this. If I, Ed Flint, I, with my hurty knee and my questionable diet and my not very good running style and my lack of time to go training for a marathon because I've got three kids and a puppy, even if I, I am able to do a marathon, then how much more can you you nubile, young, athletic things with no commitments, how much more are you, every single one of you, able to do the World Vision Marathon that we as a church are doing? It starts on March 8th, I think, and it goes up the price the longer that you hold off from not doing it. How much more could you do the marathon? That's Jesus' point. No, his point is this. Don't worry, you don't have to do the marathon. Just feel guilty about not doing it. (laughs) This is Jesus' point. Here is a scumbag of a cheating, dishonest fund manager. He's an unrepentant, conniving weasel of a man who doesn't even love God. But even he... He has learned the lessons of money. Even he has been managed to let it not have power over him. And even he has decided to use it for things of eternal value rather than for things that will corrupt and destroy us. Even he can do it. So how much more will you, children of the light, people of the kingdom, people who are actually worshipping the real living God, how much more can you do that? How much more can you go, I am completely free from the power of money and I can hold it lightly in my hand and use it for things of eternal value? After um, wrestling with the problems of the house thing, I got to a stage of thinking I probably should pray. I know it's usually a last resort for me as it is for you. Anyway, I'm getting better at this, but I thought I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray about this because I need help because I'm not really liking the person I am seeing in the mirror as I wrestle with this. And so I prayed, and what I heard God say to me when I was praying was, just do it. Just do it. And I thought, I could do that. I could. I could just sit down and do that with the money. So just one morning, pay back all the people we owe, and gave a proportion of the money away. And do you know what it felt? It felt amazing. It felt completely freeing. It felt like, I don't care anymore. I am full of joy. I like doing this. I wonder what else we could do to give money away. And it stopped me thinking about all the ways I could use the money for myself and all the ways in which I thought, actually, this is life-giving. This is great. I love doing this. This is how we rob money of all its power. There is a point to him being a steward in this story because the steward is not his money. He is just administering it. And we are not owners of the money. God is. It's all his. The Bible says it from start to finish. It's all God's. Everything that you can see, all the money in your wallet, all the money, as we say, in our daughter's piggy banks that we often need to use. It is all God's, and we are just called to administer it wisely and shrewdly. So hold it in big, wide, open hands. 
I like the fact that, God, uh, that Jesus here doesn't talk in sort of esoteric, difficult to get your head around terms about eternal um, meaningfulness with what we do with our money here and now. So he's not talking about, hey, if you use money wisely, you will have a glorious fluffy cloud on which to spend eternity. He doesn't say you'll have like a diamond encrusted harp that you can strum away for infinite time. He says, use it for people physical, real people who last forever. And the point here is, when you get to heaven, let's just assume heaven exists. We do, right, Christians? Let's assume heaven exists. When you get to heaven, do you want to turn up and go, hi guys, none of you will know me uh, because I didn't invest in any of you at all, uh, but I'm really pleased to be here. Let's, you know, let's catch up. Let's find out stuff. Or do you want to arrive and people go, there you are, there you are, I've been waiting for you, you are the reason I'm here, you are the reason that life is good, I could not wait to spend more time, we've been waiting for you. Because people are more important always than things. But of course, if heaven in the future is too hard to get your head around, heaven has already started now, thanks to Jesus. And these relationships are available to us now if we were only to invest in them. This isn't about buying friendships, obviously. I hope that's clear. But when I go to a bar and someone who I don't know very well says... I'd like to buy you a drink. This is sounding a very strange story. In my mind, it's not just me walking into a bar and someone saying, can I buy you a drink? That would be weird. This is more about meeting a group of people who I already know a little bit, and then one of them says, would I like to buy you a drink? And I would go, yes, I would like to buy you. I, I would like you to buy me a drink. What I think is not, oh, he's trying to buy my friendship. I'm, I'm thinking, that's nice. That's made me happy. I like him. Because that's what we're talking about. Use money to make people happier. Really, that's the Christian game, is to make people happy. We are in the happiness business, and we believe as Christians that happiness is about having a purpose and a meaning to your life. It's about being connected to the Almighty God. It's about being connected to other people through the Almighty God. It's about having his spirit live in us and changing us, and that is where happiness comes from. So let us spread the happiness by helping people come to those realizations and experiencing happiness. Use your money to make people happy. I'm coming to the end, don't worry. I've said this, but it's worth repeating. A friend of mine told me the other day, uh, no, it was the other month, um, that uh, wait staff in this country, none of them ever want to work on Sundays, Sunday afternoons. And do you know why the reason for that is? That's when the Christians come in for lunch. And the Christians do not tip. So no wait staff want to wait on the Christians. I have to say, and I'm trying not to be hyperbolic here, this is one of the things that has made me question most why the hell we're doing this. If Christians are the worst tippers, 
we should be the best tippers. We should go to restaurants and we should be climbing over ourselves, climbing over everyone else to try and give the best tip that we possibly could to the people who are serving us. Not because we want them to know we're Christian. Oh, I did it because I'm a Christian and I want you to know Jesus. We don't do it that and we're not doing it because we're rewarding hard work. You have done very well in serving me and now I'm going to reward you. We're doing it because we are so desperate to rob money of all its power that we cannot help ourselves giving it away as quickly as we possibly can, knowing that it will really benefit other people. That's why we do it. Could we, next time we meet, find out that wait staff want to work on Sundays around here because that's when we go to their restaurants. Could we just agree that we will do that as a small little thing? When we go into restaurants, we are going to be the most ridiculously extravagant, generous tippers because that's what the ridiculous, extravagant, generous God has done for us. Good? Good. Good. Mm, so, what are we going to do with our money? I hope it goes without saying that you should not give all your money, all the money that you give, to the church. Give a proportion of the money that you give to things that excite you, things that you like, things that make you think that's a good thing to invest in. Back winners, find the ones that you think are most likely to succeed and give money to them. Do it joyfully and generously and don't think too much about it. When you give money, I wouldn't work out the exact calculation. You know, it kind of loses all the fun. Just give it. It should be fun. But also, I hope it goes without saying that, and this is for people who are part of the church, it is psychologically a bit weird to not give money, not to give your full self to something that you want to belong in. Now, you never have to feel like you belong here. You never have to actually take that step. You can come here for as long as you like and just sit there. That's absolutely fine. But if you think that this is your church, it's psychologically a bit kind of double think to not also invest your full self in it. Martin Luther, who I don't particularly like, said one very important thing, which was this, that um, everyone needs the th conversions of three things, their heart, their mind, and their wallet, the hardest of which is the wallet. So convert your wallet, and it would be good to give to your church.